Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Excited to be here with you today. We are going to be moving into the story of Jesus' arrest, and that comes at the behest, internal rhyme, of the religious leaders who are going to send a band of soldiers, temple officers, and probably just some mob-like people to arrest Jesus, of course, with the intent of putting him to death. Uh, we will witness in the story a few things. We are going to see some things that we don't really maybe always talk about. We're going to see Jesus' loneliness in this. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Jesus' sorrow. That's maybe a little easier to see in this one. And we're also going to talk about the temptation to turn away that is experienced by the disciples. And from here until Easter, being frank, we will be dealing with heavy topics on the Bible breakdown, right? Because all of the things that happen leading up to Jesus' death on the cross uh, are pretty brutal. And that's the reality of it. And that's part of the significance of what Jesus has done is that he went through incredibly brutal circumstances on our behalf. So that's where we'll be until Easter, which is the 31st. So hoping to have an episode there a few days before then. But just so you know, also next week will probably be an off week. And just so you're aware, but we'll have a couple more leading up to Easter. But what we're going to do today, we're going to read again about the account of Jesus' arrest. We're going to do the story from Matthew 26. Uh, so just there it is, does come up in Mark and Luke and to an extent John as well. But we're going to be in Matthew 26 today that we'll pull a little information from those other stories, giving us a well-rounded picture. So Matthew 26 today, and we'll be starting with verses 30 through 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So remember last week we talked about uh, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Passover meal, the upper room, all that good stuff. So Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper where uh, in the new covenant, uh, we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember his body broken. We remember his blood poured out for us. And so now coming from there, this is the time that is especially leading downhill toward Jesus' work on the cross. And so he is telling them that that this very night is the one that they will fall away from him because they are followers of his. So Jesus delivers the bad news. They're about to fulfill some prophecy, but that prophecy is a major bummer. So that's where the uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter part comes from Zechariah 13. Um, and as he says, they will fall away from him. So, and as a reminder, one reason we're doing Matthew here too is Matthew is a book that will most often of all the gospels point us to how Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, all those things fulfill a, an Old Testament prophecy. So it's always helpful when we're wondering, hmm, how does the Old Testament point to Jesus? Matthew does a great job of helping us understand that. So we're grateful that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to give us, especially those of us who are less familiar than potentially a uh, first century Jew would have been, uh, we're less familiar with the Old Testament. And so it's very helpful for us, again, recognizing that God has not changed and that this is not 
uh, a series of happenstances, but instead this has long been God's plan of redemption. So Jesus also throws in there a reminder though, here's the good news, that he will be raised up. For some reason, and who knows, maybe this is purposeful um, in just the, the plan that God had, but this is the thing that Jesus says the most often that the disciples clearly did not understand and seemed to regularly forget. So he throws them in this huge news that after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, which is amazing news, but they just came to kind of move right past that. I don't know. Maybe they were kind of just like, it's almost like their ears were plugged up a little bit until he, it actually happened. So they could be like, oh, okay, I see now. But there's one person who's not going to stand for this line of thinking from Jesus. Peter, blessed man that he is, asserts that, I'm sorry, Jesus, you are incorrect. I will not abandon you. And even if all these other goofballs do, I am not going to. And I can only imagine that that earned quite a bit of side eye from the other disciples. They're like, come on, man, what's, what are you doing? Are you throwing us under the bus? He said, even if they do, I won't. Um, however, Jesus has more bad news for Peter. Peter is going to deny him three times that day, that very night, he said. It won't even take very long. You will, def you will deny me three times. Sweet, sweet, blessed Peter. He feels the need again to argue with Jesus and tell him, I'm, I'm so sorry, you're wrong, Jesus. Um, quite hilarious. Very Peter of him. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, is what Peter said. And all the disciples said the same. They said, hey, we're right or die. Okay, we're in this. And it will take them a very short time to show that there are cracks in their resolve to stay with Jesus. So as we move into this next passage, verses 36 through 43, we'll look at Jesus' very uh, famous prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here in this section. So that's what we will do. We shall unpack it. But it starts pretty simply, right? Jesus wants to spend some time praying in this place, Gethsemane. Okay, A place that I have actually visited when I visited Israel. Now, it's one of those, you know, they're trying to make a buck, right? So they're going to say, yeah, this is Gethsemane. So as best we can figure, it was Gethsemane, right? But it was a very powerful experience to pray in that place that they believe may be the garden Jesus prayed in. So there's just a little side note. But Jesus takes his, his inner circle, his inner three of the disciples, and that's Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John. And he tells them of how sorrowful he is. He asks, will you please watch with me? And I have to imagine he's probably asking that they keep an eye out for what he knows is coming, which is his arrest. Basically, they kind of keep watch for him, I think is what Jesus is requesting of them. 
And then Jesus prays a prayer that has led to a lot of questions. This is the prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So before we unpack that, which I think has rightfully so raised a lot of questions of what Jesus is really asking here, let's first, let's go ahead and define some terms because it's a lot easier to answer a question when you know what the question is, right? So first, let's say, let's look at the word cup. So there's some significance in the symbolism of cup. A cup in the Old Testament usually has the connotation of God's wrath. In the New Testament, looking back to remember, we were just at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, it refers to Christ's work and more generally, wrath and suffering, right? Being that this is before Jesus' death, I think it is most likely that the cup does represent God's wrath as it is traditionally seen in the Old Testament. So in this case, that, of course, cannot be separated from suffering, right? In this case, God's wrath is going to result in suffering. And it's one of those God's wrath, there's probably always going to be suffering on the other side, but suffering doesn't always begin with God's wrath, if that makes sense. A rectangle square situation, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, right? So other, other cases, you know, you could be suffering with a trial, whether it be a, a sickness, losing a job, something with a difficult with a kid or a friend, whatever that may be. And it may not actually be rooted in God's wrath against you, but rather the effects of sin in the world, right? And God's wrath, it's not that God is necessarily doing those things to you. In this case that we're talking about with Jesus' work on the cross, part of that is God's wrath on sin that Jesus is willing to take on him. So in this case, the wrath and the suffering, are, I don't think, can really be separated. So... All that to say, this cup that he's referring to, the cup that he wants to pass from him, I believe is referring to God's wrath and the resultant suffering. And also the word here for pass from me, that's also important. The verb here in the Greek is par erkomai, which means to pass by without touching. So think about, uh, I'm going to let this car pass by me without touching me before I go in the street, right? It's a little bit of a like, hey, let this go on by me without touching me and in potential situations hurting me, right? So if that's what we're talking about, then he wants this potentially this cup of wrath to pass by without harming him. What is Jesus asking the father for? So I've got two possibilities. There are others that I think are less possible. These are, I think, the, the biggest ones. Um, first, that there be another way to accomplish redemption without the cross. Second, that the suffering be short. And the other option, well, this is really the only thing we can really be sure about, is Jesus is not asking a, a way out for accomplishing our redemption. That's the only thing we can be 100% sure about, because in both cases, because he's going to ask a very similar question there in verse 42, and he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In both of those, it is a, I'm putting it in the hands of the Father that if there's no other way, then this is what I'm going to do. Okay? So that's the one thing we can be sure of, is that he's not trying to get out of making a way for us to be reconciled to God. And there's incredible comfort in that. As difficult as this was, that is not something that Jesus was asking for. A way to not have to accomplish God's will in our reconciliation to him and our redemption. There's great comfort in that. Now, as for those two things, I think most likely what is going on here, because remember Jesus in his ministry on earth is fully human, fully God. I think Jesus is experiencing a very human 
fear and dread and the desire to avoid immense pain. And possibly even on a divine scale to experience God's wrath, right? What Jesus does show, though, certainly divinely, is the resolve to submit to the Father's will in order that we might be reconciled to God. So of those options, if he's asking for God's wrath to be, uh, if there's another way to accomplish redemption or that his suffering be short, I, I do think here that Jesus is asking the Father, again, in a asking as if it's not as if he doesn't also know. So that's, I think, also the confusion, right? Well, Jesus is God, so he kind of knows this is the only way. I think certainly that is true, but then also, again, we have to take into account Jesus' humanity and what that might lead him to choose and say uh, and to feel. So it requires a little bit of us kind of doing a, you know, a fully God, fully human kind of analysis with Jesus. But I think, again, what is most important here is that Jesus was experiencing the humanity that we are told in the book of Hebrews that he's experienced what we do, except he does so without sin, right? But also we see Jesus resolve, Jesus resolve to follow through with taking the wrath of God upon him, assuming there is no other way. Again, a question that perhaps Jesus already knew the answer to, right? Perhaps all of this is really for our benefit to see what was going on in just the, the process for Jesus that we could kind of attach to. Yeah, I see that Jesus is expressing uh, some fear. And we can, of course, we can attach to experiencing fear because we do too. So all of that to say, it's not 100% sure what exactly, how we put all these pieces together. But what is clear is that regardless of what the ifs were, the end result was your will be done. The Father's will be done. And Jesus resolved to follow through on that. Because remember, he is taking the wrath upon him, not that he deserved, but the wrath that we deserved. Willingly taking that wrath upon him so that we could be reconciled to him. And so as he prays this prayer of eternal, godly loyalty and submission, his closest friends fall asleep. And Jesus' moment of greatest agony, he was already being abandoned by his friends. So as he rouses them from sleep, he tells them, pray that they would not enter into temptation. I think the temptation he's likely referring to is the temptation they will have to run in the face of his arrest. But they don't listen. They do. They fall back asleep. And obviously, Jesus has his relationship with the Father, right? From, the, from before time began until after time is ended, Jesus is in eternal relationship with the Father. And we too have access to our relationship with the Father through Jesus, right? But also, I don't think that we should minimize the hurt and the loneliness Jesus must have felt in these moments as he is going through the, the most agony that he has gone through up to this point, imagining what will be awaiting him that his friends weren't there for him. And remember, as I just said a little bit ago, he experienced what we do except without sin. So we can't think that Jesus was immune from feeling hurt or feeling loneliness on that human to human level. Well, let's skip down then to Jesus arrest, starting in verse 47, going through verse 56. 
While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So again, we see this moment as Jesus is experiencing his friends falling asleep, not being there for them. Now we have the one who has for a while already since left being his friend, right? And Judas appears. Judas comes and he has given them a sign. He's given them a sign that he is going to kiss the person that is the one that they are to arrest, right? Adding to that hurt, that loneliness, another one of these people who had been with him his whole ministry, he's got a small army in tow, and his goal is to betray him by identifying Jesus. So this little militia that he's got with him is probably made up of Roman soldiers. John uh, has this in, John, in his gospel, along with probably some temple guards and probably some local riffraff. Uh, that's what my Matthew commentary says. So I thought that would be fun to include some local riffraff, just some people that are like, here, take this club. We're about to start something. And they said, that sounds good. Judas, he said, here's the sign. Arrest the one I kiss. You may be wondering, don't they know what Jesus looks like perhaps? Um, but it's probably dark. So maybe they couldn't quite see. And, uh, maybe these particular guards, soldiers, riffraff didn't know what he looked like, you know? So maybe some of the chief priests did, but the people who were actually going to do the laying on of hands and all that stuff, maybe they didn't know what he looked like. So here comes Judas to identify him. So he greets him, he kisses him, he tells him, oh, Rabbi, greetings, Rabbi. Rabbi being kind of a gesture of respect, right? But also there's some distance with that title, right? Because remember, Jesus is going to tell his disciples at one point, I no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Like their relationship was that of a rabbi and students, but also much more than that. He kind of gives the title that would uh, give a little bit more distance, relational distance. And then what Jesus says is basically just get on with it, buddy. Uh, definitely a big irony here with Jesus using this greeting of friend, right? Kind of more calling back to what he said he was rather than what he was, right? And then... There's this whole ear fiasco, right? We're not going to get into that too much. In Luke, we're told that Jesus heals that ear. So there you go. Most important thing is that twice here in this, uh, in his responses to that event and then also to those who are arresting him, recognizing that these are divine events unfolding, that scripture will be fulfilled through this, and that Jesus' motivation is to do the Father's will. Same as in the paragraph before. And he's going to fulfill that which has long been foretold in the scriptures from the prophets, we get to see 
what it looks like for these things to finally be fulfilled. But as they take him, just like Jesus predicted, all his friends, the ones who had been with him, who swore up and down that they would never leave him, they run and they don't look back. They scattered, just like Jesus said. And we see this specifically in Peter in more detail in verses 69 through 75. So we'll jump down there. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So out of what we can only guess is feared Peter denies Jesus three times, promising with oaths, making promises on who knows what, that he doesn't even know Jesus, saying that I would, I, may I be cursed if I even knew him. These are the things that Peter is using to defend the fact that he didn't know the person that he just said, even if I die, I would never leave you. Here he is with a group of strangers saying, I would rather be cursed than be called a person who knew Jesus. And then the rooster and Peter remembers Jesus' words came true and all he can do is weep. There's a passage in the book of John that's often called the restoration of Peter in which Jesus eats with him, kind of recommissions Peter. That scene cannot be separated from this scene. The incredible brokenness, the betrayal, the sacrilege of swearing up and down, of making these oaths, of asking, may there be a curse on me if I'm lying. And then coupling that with the restoration and the redemption that Jesus offers, even after all of this. So thinking about Jesus' arrest, it leaves us with a feeling of a just a darkness, right? If it's got a, a feeling of it's not right, a feeling of uh, anger, a feeling of sadness, thinking about this, a feeling of even just watching our Lord be betrayed and recognizing a couple of things. One, just reminding ourselves that in the story, we're the disciples at best. At best, we're the disciples who ran and pretended we didn't know him. That's who we were before Jesus captures our hearts, before the Holy Spirit guides us into a relationship with God through Jesus' completed work. We are at best the disciples who abandoned him. Now, at worst, we're the people who arrested him. And that's probably more like it. That even faced with that, even in the face of his closest friends betraying him, Jesus still chose to give everything for us. Even though those who were put around him to be people that would minister with him, that he would guide, that he would teach, that he would share meals with, that in the moment that he needed them most, that they too ran away. And Jesus still thought 
that we were worth giving all of it for. That that cup of wrath that awaited him, that he asked if there were any other way that he would like to do that way, but only insofar as it fit with the Father's will, the Father's will being that we would be reconciled to him through Jesus' sacrifice. Even in the face of all this, Jesus still gave it all. And remembering, too, that these things that Jesus went through are things that we can imagine going through ourselves, right? That Jesus did go through the things that we struggle with as well. Who among us hasn't felt abandoned or betrayed by a friend at a time? People that were very close to us. That we haven't had people that have fled when we needed them most, right? That we haven't also... We can also attach to the fact that we have been those people, the people that have abandoned those who were in need, but that Jesus went through that too. Jesus knows what it feels like to be in the place of being abandoned, to be lonely. God was able, or Jesus was able to lean on his relationship with the father. And that luckily, because of what Jesus was willing to go through on our behalf, that offer is available to us too. Now, is it different than Jesus and the Father? Of course it is. But because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to wonder where God is or how he feels about us. We know that through our faith in Jesus, not only we know God is with us at all the time, the indwelling Holy Spirit is with us at all times. We know that God views us as his children, as sons and daughters, as co-heirs with Jesus. That's how he views us. And that's all because of what Jesus went through. So in those times when we are abandoned, we're lonely, we feel like the people around us aren't there for us, we can be reminded of the one who was faithful to the end. That even in the face of great difficulty, of great pain and suffering, that Jesus continued never doubting that whatever was necessary for us to be reconciled to him, that he would be willing to do it. And there's great comfort in that. And knowing that we have a Savior not only who is as kind and relational as he is, but also has the uh, resolve to accomplish what needed to be accomplished, even at great cost to himself. So even though there is sadness as we think about what went on in this part of Jesus' journey on earth of his arrest and what we'll eventually talk about with his quote-unquote trial, the beatings that he'll go through, and ultimately his death, that we also find joy in the fact that he cared about us enough, that he loved us enough, that he desired to glorify himself enough so that we could know him, that he would be willing to go all through all of this, not so that he could receive any sort of acclaim from the people then, but rather that we could be reconciled to him. And as Jesus humbles himself, then we also see that he is exalted for his humility Right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Those who humble themselves will be exalted in Jesus being the perfect example. He humbled himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross, even to great suffering on the cross. And he did it for you. He did it for me. He did it that we might be in eternal relationship with him.